Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm, I'm so excited to be doing a podcast today that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Just an unscripted conversation with one of my favorite colleagues. If you don't know Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, uh, you really should. Uh, he hails from Jackson County, Missouri, which is, of course, home to Kansas City and, more importantly, Independence, Missouri, my hometown. Uh, he is a, a great, wonderful guy, a great colleague. He was the mayor of Kansas City for a long time. So he's been a big deal in Jackson County politics for, uh, for a couple decades and more. Um, but more importantly, uh, he is a prominent member of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, a leader uh, in the Democratic Caucus, and someone I look to for political and spiritual guidance, uh, even though our, our spiritual paths are quite different. Uh, I'm looking forward to having him on the podcast and having a conversation. Welcome, Emmanuel Cleaver. Good to be with you. Thank you. So I'd like to start, uh, Reverend, with uh, a conversation about the, the Black Caucus and the Civil Rights Movement. You know, this has been a year of incredible turmoil. We've lost some iconic leaders. Uh, you know, we could list off the, the folks we've lost and, you know, starting um, with the great John Lewis, but uh, there was more than that. So uh, a new generation has kind of had to step up and um, we've been through all of this ugliness. Um, talk to me about your perspective on uh, where the Congressional Black Caucus stands and where we are in this moment uh, for the civil rights movement. Well, you know, the, uh, the history of the Black Caucus is very interesting because when they started out uh, under the uh, uh, Richard Nixon administration, uh, there were 12. And uh, actually, Richard Nixon is a part of the reason that the caucus came into existence. Uh, they wanted to be make sure that he knew that there were a, a, a number of uh, African-Americans in Congress who were going to oppose uh, his policies uh, that uh, infringed, uh, in particular, on black communities. And uh, and those guys are, are legends for this, uh, the legendary, uh, well, not, uh, I mean, Charlie Rangel, uh, who, who you and I both have served with, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, and uh, uh, Bill Clay, whose son we served with, uh, Lacey Clay, uh, and uh, any number of the, uh, other, other giants. And uh, they came into existence and they, and they were uh, then, uh, uh, years later, decades later, Newt Gingrich hated the Black Caucus. So he came into power and disbanded all of the caucuses uh, so that they, uh, so that he could get to the destruction of the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. And we, but the, before then, uh, all the caucuses, if they had been accepted by leadership, had a budget. And so like uh, the Progressive Caucus, uh, could hire an executive director and had office space on Capitol Hill and use all of the equipment that we use in our offices. Well, the, the only way to, to get to the, the CBC was to stop all the caucuses, uh, which he did. 
and then some some uh, very bright attorneys uh, uh, they got together and figured out a way to go around New Gingrich, and uh, and so they uh, instead of get, uh, paying from a fund set up by the House, uh, all the members gave a portion of their uh, members' uh, budget and uh, paid a director and, and whoever whoever became the chair would ha house the the staff in their office. So. Uh, and 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 we're, we're I'm glad that happened. It happened in a, in a rough time, but here we are in a rough time again. And the Philip and the civil rights organizations are again rising in terms of uh, of uh, their involvement in matters uh, like uh, the John Lewis uh, voting rights bill. You, you look at the uh, the the Urban League and and uh, Reverend Al Sharpton's uh, uh, organization, uh, the SCLC, and a new organization relatively new Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's not in the traditional sense because there's no there's no central office in place. There's no central president or central chair. chair. Uh, but they have, uh, they have uh, it's a loose, loosely uh, knitted together group of people. Uh, and, and, and they've been quite successful, I think, in, in raising the consciousness uh, of America. Uh, and they're producing, uh, I think, uh, uh, some new people uh, for public office, uh, in, including in Congress, um, and but uh, I don't think anybody would, uh, or very few people would say we don't need the civil rights organizations. We don't need to have the Black Caucus anymore. That day has not uh, left us. Uh, in fact, we might be needed now more than ever. Yeah. So John Lewis, Elijah Cummings, Alcee Hastings. We've just lost some giants, and. Thankfully, there's a deep bench in the Congressional Black Caucus, but I look to you and Karen Bass and a few others as sort of the next up to, to be those new leaders going forward. Do you feel any pressure uh, in that regard? Well, I, I feel more pressure at home uh, to, because uh, a group of uh, young ministers uh, approached me two weeks ago and said, look, uh, you know, the guy who's been uh, the godfather of our community uh, has died, Reverend, Reverend Wallace Hartsfield. And I said, uh, you know, we, we'd like to uh, be able to come to you uh, for, uh, you know, counsel. And uh, and then one of them said, is, is it also okay for us to start calling you Pops? And I thought, wait a minute, what are you trying to say? You know, uh, but, uh, and I finally said, yeah, I'm good with this, all right. Uh, but uh, so I'm playing a different kind of a role now uh, with, the, with the younger members in the Congressional Black Caucus and here at home. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm the person that you know, people come and talk to uh, when issues arise that they uh, would like uh, you know, someone who's been there uh, to present their, uh, uh, another perspective maybe. So uh, it's a role that I'm playing. Uh, I have in the CBC. Uh, I have also, in some ways, become the pastor of, uh, of the CBC, and for sure, uh, in, in pastor of, uh, uh, of uh, the, the Congress. I just, I mean, yeah. I do weddings. I just did, I just did the baptizing, for example, of uh, of the uh, uh, majority leader's uh, chief of staff. Uh, I just baptized uh, her uh, new son uh, over in the Methodist building where I live. Uh, across the street from the Supreme Court. Well, so these, things, these, uh, these things speak to um, how highly uh, 
you are respected and regarded by so many people. And, and I want to get into a little bit of what makes you such a revered and, and a trusted uh, person for so many. Um, you're a preacher. You're, you're a pastor. You're a reverend. And, and that's sort of in your DNA. And, and your style uh, is one that is accessible and uh, engaging and entertaining, quite frankly. When Steny Hoyer was the whip, he would always give you five minutes at the whip meeting, and we called it the best five minutes in politics. And, and you would just tell stories. And I assume that it's drawn from you know homilies and sermons that you've given over the years. Talk, talk a little bit about how that uh, particular style of, of engaging and connecting with people came to be so central to the work you do. Well, I, I was born in a, in a little town called Walks Edge, Texas. It's actually a suburb of Dallas. You can drive from City Hall uh, in downtown Dallas to the place where I was born in 22 minutes. Uh, and, um, and so, but I, we, we lived in this little uh, town of 12,000 and uh, we lived in, in, in what was at one point a slave shack. And when I say that, people, um, you know, like, well, you know, he doesn't really mean a shave slave shack. He means a rundown, uh, you know, residence. But I mean a shave a slave shack. And a photograph of it hangs on my wall in my office in Washington uh, because it, it reminds me, and I want anybody who comes in there to also know where I came from. Uh, and But I grew up there in the shack uh, in, in an alley. We were in, a, in an alley, a real live alley. Not, I mean, it was an alley, but uh, two slave a shanty back there, uh, an outdoor to toilet facility. And and so uh, I was away from all the other kids. Uh, you know, I had three sisters who uh, were horrible human beings. They didn't want to play play cowboys with me. They didn't want to play Superman. I, I, I don't know, God is not going to be kind to them for not trying to play Superman with me. And so uh, I had to go and play alone. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had everything I needed I mean, to have fun. I mean, that's a uh, you know little uh, rivulet that runs through the property. The uh, railroad tracks not too far away. Uh, you know, a lot of weeds and places to hide and so forth. So I, I play, and I have to be both sides. I have to be the bad guy and the good guy. And so uh, it, it required dialogue. And so I could I could do a whole movie by myself. You know, uh, and and then uh, I realized uh, that um, that that I could put things together, uh, little stories together, and uh, so I have um, uh, there were uh, six first cousins, and um, uh, and four of us, uh, myself and three sisters. Uh, so there were two, bo uh, three boys in all, and the rest were girls, and so. By the time we were six or seven years old, uh, on the weekends, we all grew up together. So on the weekends, um, they'd come to me and say, uh, you know, tell us a story. Tell us a story. Uh, and, and I'd sit there and tell a story. Um, you know, I, I just learned to read. So I, I, could, you know, I, I couldn't read to find out uh, what a story, a good story would be. So I just made it up. And even when we get together today, thank God all of us are still alive. You know, the, the joke is, tell us a story. Tell us a story. Please yeah. tell us a story. And so now I tell the stories to their children. Uh, and 
and, and, and so my great grandpa, uh, the Reverend Noah Albert Cleaver, uh, was a very prominent revivalist, Christian revivalist. Uh, and he told stories in his sermon. And that's why I love to hear, hear him. He, I mean, it, it wasn't just, you know, God is going to get you, you're a bad person. God gonna, I mean, he told stories. And it, when I started preaching, uh, and I'd, go, I'd be invited around places, people would say, can you tell uh, a, a Reverend Cleaver's story about the gospel train? And I said, no, I heard it when I was a kid, but I, and I didn't remember it. I'm sorry. But everybody uh, down in Texas who had heard him told other people about, you know, you got to hear this guy, uh, Albert Cleaver, talk about the gospel train and that he made up. It was a great story, and I, I've heard it, but I just I can't I just can't remember it quite well. But I did remember a lot of the stories, I, and, and uh, I, I remember uh, the good stories. And uh, as time rolled on, I probably adjusted them a, a little, but they. I, I got to give him credit for, for, you know, putting it up here. And then, then I found out that I could also create, create, a, create those stories myself. And in church, people loved it. Uh, in my religious tradition, uh, Jesus uh, told parables. And I, I contend that the reason they are alive 2,000 years later uh, is because they were the, 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 you can remember the story better than right. in a lecture. And so he told what we call parables, which were stories. And I hear a lot of people today speak of it, as they're talking about the parables as if it happened. And, and, uh, and, and, and that's not what was going on. Jesus was trying to make a point. But in, in, in all those parables, for me, he did make a point. But I think people have somehow taken that a little further than it was uh, intended. So now, even the younger preacher, preachers would come and say, can you, can you give me a story? You know, I'm going to preach on such and such and such. Can you give me a story? And uh, I, I, I actually uh, like to do it now. It's, uh, it's fun. Yeah. Well, the, those parables do stick with you, and and they connect with people. And you're just full of them. Uh, that I've heard so many over the years, but they're rarely um, mean or fear-based. They're almost always. Uh, lighthearted and, and often humorous. Talk about why that you think is the best way to reach people. Yeah, uh, you know, this pounding on the on the podium and, and yeah, the pulpit trying to get uh, people's attention, I don't think works. And, uh, you know, you, and you don't want to go to church. People don't want to go to church and feel attacked. Uh, you know, like, oh my goodness, this was horrible today. I mean, that ought to place, be a place where you feel good and and when you leave, you know, you feel lighter. Uh, and so, you know, they can remember. So, for example, one of the stories that I think I've told the, uh, uh, the, the Dem Caucus uh, group meeting, uh, which was born out of an experience. And uh, uh, my, my Aunt Edna, who also helped in the story uh, uh, capacity for me, um, my mother's the only living relative that we knew. Uh, and so, Every Tuesday night we had to, we had to you know, go over to her house and we sat on our porch. And she was one of the most well-read persons I've ever been around and, and her vocabulary was limitless, seemingly. And so uh, my three sisters, as usual, would want to go out and play. I want to sit right there on that porch and listen to her for an hour, two hours, however long. And I remember one night she's teaching the four of us, my three sisters and me. She says, 
you know, there was uh, an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. Uh, she gave them some broth without any bread, hugged them tightly, and put them to bed. And so on Sunday morning, when we went to the Mount Lebanon Primitive Baptist Church, Mount Lebanon Primitive Baptist Church, so the preacher uh, does the sermon, and as we're going out of the door, he's standing at the door shaking hands. And so I went up and I said, uh, Reverend Gardner, uh, I want, I'd like to know what we're going to do about that woman. And she, he said, what are you talking about, little Cleaver? And I said, the woman, the woman who's living in a shoe. So my mother and my grandmother are trying to pull me away. And I, I'm saying, Reverend, Reverend, she's got a lot of children. We got to help her. You were up there preaching the day about helping people. What are we going to do about this woman? They're pulling me down the sidewalk. <laughs> and, 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 and suffering from eternal embarrassment. And uh, I, I thought it was a, a good question. Uh, but uh, when I got home and thought about it and, and then reflected on it a couple of years later, I realized that that was the day I became a Democrat. Uh, because, I, I, you know, I was obsessed with this woman and those children. And uh, uh, and I felt like if, if, if um, my religion meant anything, it meant that I have to spend my life trying to get people out of those shoes. And, uh, and, and so instead of like pointing my finger at the congregation, you better, you need to give, you're gonna go to hell if you don't help people and, you know, they can remember that story and, 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 and easily. And, uh, you know, how I came up with it, I have absolutely no idea except the multitude of, of experiences I've had. Um, and so I took a real live event uh, and, and, and molded into into a story that I think people uh, remember. I know people remember. Oh, and you've, you've told so many great ones uh, in our WIP meetings over the years. Uh, I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, so what, one last thing about your, your style and your, and your preaching. Um, this is not just something that you learned by engaging in both sides of a dialogue, you know, outside of the, the shack you grew up in. By the way, a story which sounds a lot like John Lewis preaching to chickens. Yeah. You, you have yeah. pretty interesting uh, overlap there in, in the origin of your, uh, of your styles. Um, but you actually are trained. You, you uh, went to divinity school. Talk a little bit about, you know, how that shaped you. Well, uh, I graduated from HBCU, Prairie View A&M University. I went, uh, I went there hoping to play football, but I was injured, and long story uh, that I won't go into. But uh, I, I then uh, started thinking about, you know, what I was going to do. I grew up in a family of preachers. Uh, my, my, my grandpa, my great-grandpa, uh, my father's uh, oldest brother, my uncle, uh, my great-uncle, my great-grandpa's brother was a was a a prominent bishop in the uh, in the uh, Church of God in Christ in San Francisco, and in fact, uh, he was uh, as, as the leader, as Speaker Pelosi would tell you, he's one of the best known uh, ministers uh, in Northern California. So I came out of that experience uh, as well. But my grandpa was always broke, so I thought I don't need that in my life. I can, I, you know, I I don't want to do that. I don't want I don't want to do, go where he's gone. Uh, and, and had uh, plans to stay away from the, the, the church in terms of, of being any kind of a, a, a pastor. Uh, but then when um, uh, 
I, I started getting involved in the, in the civil rights movement. I led my first march when I was 15 years old, and um, uh, to to desegregate the movie theaters in, in my little town, hometown. And uh, and then I started paying attention to this guy on television every day, Martin Luther King, hmm. and uh, and I and then I started paying attention to the people around him. Uh, uh, people who would later become my my uh, heroes and my mentors, like uh, Reverend James Lawson uh, from Los Angeles, California. Uh, actually, he, he's from uh, Tennessee, but uh, Reverend Joseph Lowry, uh, Reverend Andrew Young, Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson, who who, uh, who they call uh, country, uh, Reverend C.A. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father, who pastored one of the largest churches in Detroit, uh, Reverend Benjamin Hooks, uh, I mean, it goes, it goes on and on and on, Fred Shuttlesworth. And so I started thinking, you know, that that's, I mean, I can relate to that more than I can relate to the, what was called the sacerdotal. Um, and, and the sacerdotal is a, is a way in which uh, pastors see themselves. And, and so if, if, uh, it's S-A-C-E-R-D-O-T-A-L, but it's, uh, but it's sacerdotal, pronounced sacerdotal. And, and those are the people who who who, who, who uh, only connect with the priestly side of the ministry. You know, uh, uh, serving communion, visiting the sick, uh, doing the baptisms, and so forth. That 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 God wanted them to just serve the people. Um, but after I saw this other uh, group, I thought, in spite of the fact that my my family members are more uh, sacerdotal, uh, I thought. I'd I, I can't do that. And so uh, I, I, James Lawson, his brother, Bill Lawson, anyway, they talked me into going to seminary. And uh, I went to St. Paul's School of Theology and got a master's uh, of divinity and started on my doctorate and uh, uh, became too embroiled in, in a, a lot of other things to, to finish. Um, but I, I came from a family that was split. I have my... Um, Two, my two great, two, my great grandfather and his brother, um, great great grandfather's brother, were brought from Georgia by a woman named Grace. She slipped them out of Georgia during slavery, and uh, one group of them stayed in, in uh, Arkansas. The others went down in Texas. Uh, uh, a, a man who became world renowned, uh, Elvis Cleaver, my cousin, uh, was in uh, was my his father. Uh, uh, and my great and my great grandfather and, and his great grandfather were brothers, and so uh, he had another whole way of dealing with issues uh, with the Black Panthers. He, um, uh, he and he came in when they, when it was first organized, and um, he had a tumultuous career. Long story there, I, I won't go into that. Uh, and then my my other cousin Peter O'Neill, who was the head of the Panther, Panther Party in Kansas City. Uh, so I had I had some cho- I had some choices, uh, and although I respected and still loved them, I, I you know I think both of those guys, Pete, Pete O'Neill and, and Elvis Cleaver, two smartest human beings I think on the planet. But uh, I didn't go that route. I, I was more drawn to the King theology, and 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 I, and I still believe that that's 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 the right way to do it. Uh, and I ended up being appointed to a little church with 27 members. And they, the reason they appointed me is because I, they, I was just in seminary. They knew I couldn't preach, and they wanted to close the church. 
uh, <laughs> and so they said, we're going to close the church, you know, the Episcopal system, you know, the bishops and districts of the town said, well, we got the space, we got the, the exact person that you need. Put Cleaver oh, there. And so it sounds you know, like the sounds like the Mel Brooks movie, The Producers, where they tried to yeah. fail. <laughs> yes, that, that, I had thought about that. Is, that is a good parallel. And they all take credit now. But the church eventually ended up with about 3,000 members. So, uh, um, you know, I, I, I think they would prefer, I mean, they like to tell the story. They knew I was going to do that, uh, be as successful. Uh, I don't buy it. I never say that, but uh, they didn't. They wanted to close that church. It was possible to accomplish money. Let, let me ask, uh, as, as we wind down here, Reverend, let me ask you about the elephant in the room. Here you are, this, this man of deep faith, uh, multi-generational uh, preacher, uh, and, and you're talking to uh, your friend who is a, a non-believer. There are all sorts of labels that could apply to me. Um, I think of myself as spiritual, but I don't have uh, the same uh, religious belief as, as you and other people of faith. I'm a humanist. Um, why is it important that uh, we uh, get along and, and be friends and work together with people uh, of different perspectives uh, on these things? And, and uh, you know, how, how do you feel about, you know, being friends and allies with uh, uh, someone that others might regard as, as a godless person to be avoided and, and, and judged? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, uh, um, I, I, I know uh, uh, many people, and I serve with some people uh, who embrace love and peace, uh, aiding the poor, aiding the hurt, uh, aiding the forgotten, aiding the, the ignored. And I consider, consider them to be practitioners of the religion of humanity. And uh, I, I think one of the things that bothers me most in, 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 our, in this country right now is uh, the, the, the religious arrogance. Uh, and I, I see religious arrogance uh, as, as a way of disguising a fragile faith. People who are just always in your face, in your face about, uh, you know, I, I, do you know Jesus? You know, I mean, and, you know, what is the benefit of that? I mean, do you know Jesus? And so uh, I, I think that uh, our faith uh, or our beliefs uh, uh, shape who we are, uh, and whether we put a, put a religious label on it or not, uh, you know, I, 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 in, in some instances, I would rather be around a, a secular humanist uh, than I would a, a, a Christian because of the, 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 the theological arrogance that I see all the time, uh, because I don't believe in what uh, uh, people would, would call, you know, uh, we, we want to throw me in the trash can about, and that is, uh, I, I don't, I, I think we have to be very careful with evangelism. Uh, as, as uh, you know, I think we come to the, we come to the conclusion we're supposed to go out and make everybody uh, like us. And, uh, and, and, and Jesus said uh, very clearly, he said, um, you know, there are other sheep, not of this fold. Uh, I must bring them also. So, you know, I mean, Jesus recognized everybody wasn't going to be connected. Uh, and so I, I, I have no, no problem at all. In fact, uh, you know, I consider you to be a friend. I consider your, your political theology to be the, the theology that could save this country uh, because uh, I, I think we are slipping 
away from, frankly, from democracy. And if, and if we're not careful, that's where we're going to end up. And I think uh, uh, I would much rather be with somebody who is uh, inextricably connected to justice uh, and uh, uh, than somebody who goes around with the hallelujah and that kind of thing. I'd rather be any day of the week, any day of the week. And, I, and frankly, I think it, 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 the, the, the biblical narrative about Jesus Christ was shown. I think that's who he would want to be with as well. Well, that, that was beautifully said. I appreciate that very much, Rev. Well, last thing we got to talk about before I got before I let you go, you know, during football season, every Monday or Tuesday when we show up in Washington, we look for each other to, to talk about that one thing that we have in common. Um, I, I should ask you about the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, you know, Mahomes has just predicted that the Chiefs would go 20-0. Um, I didn't I, – I, I, that has made me a little nervous. Uh, I'm – I'm a part of a, a, a group in, here in town uh, of Chiefs fans that, called the Monday Nighters. They started doing watching uh, Chiefs together uh, 30, 40 years ago on Monday night. But anyway, uh, m- many of us are nervous about him saying that. Uh, now he might be like Joe Namath, uh, you know. I guarantee. But uh, but uh, I think the Chiefs are going to be very good this year. Uh, very very good if if nobody gets hurt. Um, I mean, somebody's going to get hurt. If we don't, if we don't uh, uh, lose any of the people that we can't afford to lose, uh, wide receivers, for example, we can't afford yeah. to lose our quarterback. Uh, and uh, the offseason uh, was what I was hoping for, which was to go out and get the best offensive lineman on the planet that you can get, that you can buy. And I think uh, that the Chiefs have done that. So uh, uh, I, I think – Mahomes will be protected, and if he's protected, he is the best quarterback in the history of the planet. Uh, and I think even even the even the haters from places like Denver uh, <laughs> would, would have to admit that this guy oh, is his own. Yeah, you know when I when I am done with my time in Congress and I look back, I'll I'll appreciate many many things, but I'm going to always smile thinking about you and me talking to that Denver guy, Ed Perlmutter from Colorado about the Broncos and the Chiefs. Uh, those are fun moments. Yeah, yeah I hope that I, that I could get you here one one weekend so we could go out to the to Arrowhead together. Um, it is an experience uh, that's like no other stadium. It is, it, is, uh, it is constantly ranked as the nauseous stadium in the NFL. Well, I'll take you up on that, Rev. And uh, let me thank you very much for spending part of the morning with me and being on my podcast. Good to be with you. All right. Take care. Right. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cup with Jared Huffman.